Did you study to be a chef when you were younger? What did you want to be when you grew up? My my growing up years were very much influenced by the late 60s. So my teenage years were late 60s, and we all know what was happening in the late 60s. So it was very counterculture. <laughs> um, yep. You know, I mean, I sort of went off to see the Rolling Stones when I was 13. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. Cheese, or fromage as we call it here in France, is sometimes a luxury or a special treat. Sometimes it's just part of your daily meal. A bit of cheese, wine and bread to finish off a lovely weekend with someone is the perfect moment. Today we are chatting with one of my food icons from Australian television. He's reached international audiences with his TV series that over the years has educated a wide variety of people in different cheeses, artisan, homemade ones all around the world. It could be said that my guest today is an ambassador for cheese. I say he's just a cheesy legend. Will Stud, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. A pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Will, despite being a celebrated food icon in Australia, you weren't born in Australia. Is that right? No, I was born in um, in London, in fact, and I migrated, I migrated to Australia when I was 27. Um, prior to that, I had shops in London. In fact, I had seven shops in London, believe it or not, um, and selling things like cheese. What? Do you remember most about that time? Well, specifically your childhood. It's an interesting question. I think um, basically I was I was the eldest of six boys, and and uh, we were um, I, I was carted off to boarding school at the age of eight, which my parents thought was the right thing to do. So food was very important, but I w- it wasn't certainly wasn't gourmet food. It's just food generally in a board in a boys' boarding school is something that you look forward to. And you know it's uh, pretty basic, um, and and your life revolves around your tuck box and anything that, that you can find that's better than what's being thrown out through the school kitchen. So, in an ironic sort of a way, that links back into my role with cheese in, in Australia, because it, it, I think uh, the reason I got so into cheese in Australia is because of what we can't have here rather than what we can have. And I think the, the food thing is probably linked to that. Is when you when you when you can't have when you don't have a choice, you you, you really want it, so you go out of your way to to, to find it. So uh, eventually, at school, I think it was around sixteen, I was allowed to get into um, the, the the boot room and where we had a little gas gas stove, and I made a small. A small living, actually selling pancakes to the richer kids. I'd go and get eggs, and flour, and milk from the ladies in the kitchen, and whip it up with lots of sugar, and flog it out to, to the to the to the kids that could afford it. And uh, yeah, that was prob- probably my first commercial ent- uh, enterprise with food. Although I do remember working in the tuck shop at my prep school. So there you go. So a little dip in the in the sweetie jar when no one was looking. we love a good sweetie jar Uh, so apart from the pancake making then boarding school food was not quite the same as say you know these french school kids they're going to public schools and getting three courses i think a kid here at a school in france gets a a main a cheese course and a dessert i know oh and top in some salad with that as well no 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 we had stodge you know macaroni cheese every third day followed by spotted dick if you were really lucky Funnily enough, one of the highlights, 
highlights of, of you know, I can't remember many school meals, but I can remember an occasion when uh, one of the kids there had uh, had, had uh, his parents lived in Africa, and one day they brought this wooden box in with straw, and inside were mangoes, and we'd never had mangoes before. I mean, people take mangoes for granted now, but in, in those days, you know, if, if, when I was growing up, even an orange was something special. So a mango was, wow, that was really, really something special. So I can, I can remember that. So those little moments you appreciated. And, and coming back to cheese, I remember we used to go off, the whole family would go off to Southern Ireland for a month. Um, and there, the, the, the way we, uh, we had no refrigeration, no electricity when we got there. We had a beautiful house on the beach, but um, we'd have to cut, walk up the hill to get water from a spring, which was covered in cow shit and had beautiful watercress. And I never quite knew whether you could eat the watercress or not. And, and because water was so precious, it was like, <laughs> how much do you wash it before you eat it? Anyway, uh, a lot. A lot is the answer. But um, we also would collect milk from from uh, the local fisherman. He had one cow. Um, and and we, there was no way to keep it cold. So we'd, we'd have to drink it the same day or turn it into yogurt. Um, and I remember eating that, you know, the next day with jam and loving it. So, so th- that would be my first experience of, really messing around with milk and making it into anything. Were your parents foodie people? No, 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 my, 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 not at all. But with six kids, my, they, they were that post-war British generation that had grown up with the, you know, dig for victory garden. So our, our jobs when we came home for, holi- for, for holidays from school was to go out and, and uh, you know, put, put newspaper around all the celery to blanch it um, or... I can remember building a, a, a duck hut for the ducks, or we used to keep chickens. It was very much sustainable uh, living off the off, off the land we had. We had about an acre of land. We had a cherry orchard, and and so there was a great celebration of the seasons there. And I, I count myself very lucky to have gone through that. And it's something I've continued to this day. I have a big vegetable garden, so there's nothing like growing your own. Did you study to be a chef when you were younger? What did you want to be when you grew up? My my growing up years were very much influenced by the late 60s. So my teenage years were late 60s, and we all know what was happening in the late 60s. So it was very counterculture. Um, you know, I mean, I sort of went off to see the Rolling Stones when I was 13 at, at Hyde Park and things like that. So Counterculture influenced me a lot, and uh, I went to university in Leeds, and that was a counterculture centre. After I left uni, my I promised my father that I would become an accountant because it was meant to be a good profession, and I lasted a year. They hated my long hair, earring, and rather large motorcycle, and I couldn't stand what they represent, the, the accountancy firm represented. But it did teach me how to read a balance sheet and numbers. And it was after that that I went into um, selling food because it, I needed a job. I mean, I lived in London. You had to earn a living. And uh, I was lucky. I, I went to work with um, what I call a posh supermarket. I mean, you see them all, all through France now where you could go and buy your your uh, you know, really good range of, of uh, in, you know, wines from the continent, as we call it, and, and Delhi. And there was a deli and there was there was a really interesting range of food, which for London in those days was was different. Um, and that was uh, that was in Notting Hill. And 
where I got lucky is that the uh, the lady who was running the delicatessen counter there wanted to give it up, and I'd worked as a student in uh, in Belgravia at a place called Justin de Blanc. So I'd learned about pot, what they what they call upmarket food in London. I'd been intrigued by the cheese, and I'd learned how to cut smoked salmon, and I'd learned about caviar, but not very much, but enough to know that quality really counted. And the owner of the supermarket group asked me to take over the deli and run it. And it was a, it was a sort of franchise. You just rented the space and, and it was up to, once you paid the rent, everything else was yours. So I took, I, I took it up market like the rest of what was in, in, in the store. And uh, it was very, very successful. And, and within five years, we had seven of them all across London. So, um, and, and really, when if I look back on it, it was about quality. Uh, about about recognizing quality and sharing that with customers. There's no there's no substitute for quality. And, and living in look, you living in Paris and stuff, you can't beat it. It's <laughs> Parisians understand that. So this is before smartphones and the internet. How does a young lad from UK research and find out these quality products to to put to, to put in this deli? I, well, you get out there and try them. You know, I mean, we, we didn't we didn't just sell cheese. I, the the connection with cheese, we we sold everything. Like we we used to. I mean, this is quite rare now, but we would all our salmon, for example, would be Scottish salmon. It would be wild caught salmon, which hardly exists anymore. It was smoked by the best smoker in London, and, and we all the staff had to know how to how to slice it by hand. And you can't beat doing that. But it's it's a forgotten art now. And in terms of uh, you know, charcuterie and stuff. It was all none of this um, plastic wrap stuff. It was all natural skin, and you just look into it. And, and the more you looked, the more you learned, and the more intriguing it became. And you just kept going. It was, I mean, it's what you're doing now. In fact, it's the same thing. Is just as you go along, you learn, and then sharing that with other people becomes a. As long as people are prepared to listen, Andrew, you know, you keep going. It's um. And 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 I, I know with cheese the first time I I remember with cheese discovering at, 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 in fact before the shops at Justin de Blanc discovering what real Gruyere tasted like that had been cut from the wheel compared to Gruyere that was sold in Marks and Sparks in a sort of vacuum pack they were they were chalk and cheese and the stuff off the wheel was fabulous and and you talk about that to people and then you try and work out why. And, and in the process, you, you learn. And it's funny, in teaching, you learn. And, and, uh, and sharing that became, a, became sort of what I am today. And with cheese, uh, in London in those days, there was a company called Harvey and Brockless, which was the first company to really import French cheese. Um, and uh, I was one of their biggest customers and, and uh, was always jumping on the back of their truck looking to see what they had. And eventually... I got the invitation to go over to Rangis in Paris. Um, I, I, in fact, in those days, it was Leal. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, with my schoolboy French, which is still schoolboy French, um, find out what, what French cheese was about. And the more you look at French cheese, you, you realise what a fabulous culture it is. And in those days, it was... Um, Oh, there was just so much choice, but a lot less. It, it's interesting, and a lot um, quality was much more changeable. Like uh, these days, when you look at cheese, it's very much the same, same, same. You know, it's quite dependable. 
Whereas in those days, it's very, very different. So, um, and it's something that we, we should bear in mind today is, is are we prepared to go back to those days? I mean, I'm a great, I'm a great sort of champion of artisan cheese and, and farmhouse cheese, but I'm not sure that the, the, the general public quite understand the, the variance that was involved in those days. You mentioned Laos. It's a fantastic area around there, but often I would tell people that this used to be the largest market in Paris here at Laos. You know, people find it hard to believe now when you walk there. It's just like a big Westfield-type shopping centre. But what was that experience like? Well, it was a long time ago with a lot of rats. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it was dirty. It was dirty. It wasn't... No, the move to Rangis was a good move. I mean, it might sound romantic, but it wasn't. It was. It needed... It was on its last legs when I went, and it, it was dirty. There were big rats, and it just wasn't good yet. No, it's good for this shopping centre now. Different sort of rats, but <laughs> you're obviously very entrepreneurial. But at such a young age to be that entrepreneurial was that something that was typical in the 60s, 70s? No, I got lucky. And, and the, fun, the, fun, the funny thing about selling artisan and farmhouse cheese, it was counterculture. I mean, it, 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 we take it for granted today, but. We used to go down to Covent Garden, and you know, we'd take our our, our, our glass bottles because we, you know, we didn't. We well, I don't think it was recycling then, but it was the right thing to do. And you you only collected your olive oil in a glass bottle, and you go and take it from a big tank and carry it home. It was something really special. And and farmhouse cheese, the first farmhouse cheese I sold from um, in, in the shops, the first English farmhouse cheese, it was actually illegal to buy it directly from the farm. It was meant to be sold through the milk marketing board. And and the farm that in question had, had run into problems with the milk marketing board because everything went into this big uh, public refrigeration um place called Crumpways down in Somerset and the identity of the cheese disappeared. So there was there was something left over from the Second World War and, and, and so the farms, they had to sell at a certain price, there was no incentive and you didn't know what you were getting at the other end and they, they decided to go direct which was actually illegal and in buying it, um, I was apparently breaking the law and I love that you know, it's great I want it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and the idea of selling yeah, the truth is I did love it. And, and the idea of selling it, like the, the, the French cheeses we'd sell, nobody had ever seen them before. It was, it was, it was a whole new world. It was, it was something different. It was, it was quite radical in a, in a strange sort of way. It, it's become mainstream now, but in those days it really wasn't. It was, it was something different. And you were considered a bit of an alternative, a bit of a counterculture if you sold farmhouse or artisan cheese. I mean, imagine that today. <laughs> I know. So in 1982, you migrated to Melbourne. What was behind the moving to Australia? Uh, seven shops, open you know, seven days a week. I mean, it was tough. I mean, I was making good money, but it was like you know, I had 60 staff. It was, it was full on. And, and I don't think I, I was – I got an, someone the, – the group that I was working in offered to buy me, um, and uh, really I didn't have a lot of choice, but uh, I took the money. Basically, and I, the option was to uh, set up an individual shop in London, or, um, or or I looked at migration, migrating. And my wife was Australian, and I came over to Australia for a holiday. Um, went, went up to the northeast, northeast um, New South Wales, around Byron Bay, and just loved it. It just felt felt just like England. It was all green and tropical, and cows and 
gorgeous. I've got to live here. Uh, no one's ever said that, you know. It felt just like England, green and oh, that, tropical. <laughs> well, well, well. Let's put that in perspective. So, if you think about Australia, most of the time it's dry and not it's yet. So the the great the tropical. Yes, you're right. <laughs> um, <laughs> the green bit. The the reason it's green is because of the high rainfall, right? and I guess the temperature is a bit of a yeah. And I've never seen a parrot running wild before so that was that was a bit bit strange it was it was, it was fantastic it's it compared to london it was wonderful it was just a, 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 a it beckoned and and i should say that the last trip i made to paris before i left um i was intronized into the guild from Fromagère by andrew a and 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 i'd suddenly become recognized in the cheese world i'm not quite sure why but probably because the shops bought a lot of cheese and and i started making noises about whether I could import cheese to Australia in, the, uh, in France and people looked at me like I was mad, but they, they said, yeah, we'll, we'll support you. And when I got to Australia, I couldn't believe that Australians had never seen French cheese. Everything was commodity, like Danish blue and, you know, Edam, and, but they'd never seen, they'd never seen crop cheese and there was no, no local industry either. It was all commodity. It was Australia's... A, Third largest uh, exporter of cheese in the world. I mean, of well, of dairy products in the world, and it, it, it's a young country in that respect. It didn't start until after the gold rush, selling dairy products. It's it, and it's been all about producing cheap um, milk, um, cheap cream, cheap cheap dairy products for export, but never been about specialty cheese. And and I couldn't believe it. it, it I, I mean, I said, what do you do? You you either run away and do something else or you try and change the situation. And uh, I tried running away and doing something else that didn't work for, you know, didn't work for me. So I decided to start importing cheese, much to the horror of the Australian quarantines to a, a picture on a permit. So we'd spend hours and hours and hours in a fridge trying to, trying to go through each cheese. And in those days, air freight wasn't so easy. And it was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was, took a lot longer um, and communication with France, etc., was a lot more difficult. You know, it was a telephone call um, or, or telex. Like, you know, you, you probably don't even know what a telex is, but it's a piece of tape that you punch numbers into, uh, dots into, and it sends a message rather like a telegram. And then, you know, some bit later we got faxes. Now, of course, it's easy, but, you know. Before we get really into cheese, I want to ask about the culture shock that it would have been to move to Australia because, I mean, I looked it up, 1982. We're talking about this is the time of Lindy Chamberlain. You know, she was committed for murder for her daughter. Bob Hawke became the leader of the Labor Party. I think even I remember this one. Queen Elizabeth II came to visit. She must have followed you, I think. But what was that like? What the the difference between Australian culture and and the culture from the UK at that time in in the eighties, the early eighties. Uh, I probably should summarise it to say that when I when I when I went to Australia, I thought well, I thought a lot about Australian culture. I thought you know you'd have to be everyone was big and tough, and you'd have to work really hard, and that wasn't the case at all. Um, <laughs> but if you worked hard, you could get somewhere. Uh, but more more importantly, I think as as I had that very British attitude that they were lucky to have me, and I, it took me a while, but I finally realised that actually I was lucky to be there, and I think that was that was a a change. And I, I think the, the as, as a migrant who has a choice, I guess a lot of migrants don't have a choice. The, the truth is, is that 
I had, had to make a choice if I was going to make a go. I mean, I had to be as Australian as possible. You can't sort of sit back and think, wish you were back at the pub in England. It's like they're different. Um, and so I adopted that. And also it was a, it was a wonderful, it was an interesting time because Australia was proud of being Australian. And, and I know that probably sounds strange to you sitting over there in France because you'd be proud to be Australian. But as a country, we were trying to do something different in the arts, in, 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 in food. This, there was a, an, an awakening, a, a, a national awakening, awakening of what we had, what was different. And, and I was very, very blessed in the sense the customers I had with the, with the business were some of the, you know, the, the earliest best chefs in the country. So um, they were always looking for something different. And, and what happened is we started with the, uh, the French cheese and then the European cheese. And then, we, then I sort of started working with a lot of Australians to make local cheese. And really that knowledge of cheese came from uh, asking questions in Europe to try and help the Australian cheesemakers. It sounds nuts, but in Europe, nobody asks questions. It's because, like you ask one, someone why Brie de Meaux is called Brie de Meaux, and it's because they won't tell you the story of Brie and you know the, the Meaux of the village and that the, the Brie producers once used to mature their cheeses in the, the villages and then them take them into Paris and... No, they won't tell you any of that. <laughs> or, or why it's a big cheese, you know, that used to depend on the number of cows that the, that the farm would have. Nobody nobody looks at that. But I was looking at that because I had, had wanted to explain the culture, those those cultural elements of French cheese to the Australians in, a, in an attempt for them to try and understand too. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support Fabulously Delicious, there are many ways that you can do this. The first, by far most possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review and a rating. A five-star rating, well, that would be fabulous, especially if you're listening on Apple or Spotify. Share Fabulously Delicious around with your friends, family, co-workers or anybody that you know that loves French food or just food in general. We love to be shared around. Are you a Patreon member? Well, if you want to support Fabulously Delicious, you can do this by becoming one. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you will receive exclusively made content just for you. You can find out more through the link in the show notes of this episode. Now, thanks for listening to Fabulously Delicious, and let's get back to our chat with Will Studd as we find more about French cheeses and the cheese industry in Australia. Well, what's your thoughts on cheese in Australia now compared to the 80s? Uh, look, it's come a long way. Um, my biggest frustration with Australia is that it's taste of place. I mean, the, the, re- the reality of great cheese, if you want um, great cheese to taste of the place and let's face it cheese is primordial it essentially uh, all cheese has a has a ta- all great cheese has a taste of place it doesn't it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Brie de Meaux or Comte or Roquefort or, or any of the thousands of French cheeses that are out there or hundreds of French cheese out there they all have a, an association of place and the, and the best of those are made from raw milk Australia um, banned the production and 
production of raw milk cheeses sometime in the 1940s. There were a couple of states that still allowed it when I arrived in Australia. And as that local industry started to develop in the 80s, the authorities clamped down and, and tried to prevent the production of any raw milk cheese. And it, it, from, from a specialist point of view, that, that was um, very, very frustrating because it meant that a lot of cheeses that could that had huge potential didn't because essentially like, they were made from pasteurised milk using starter cultures that uh, were sourced from Denmark or France. I mean, what does so if you went to a deli, so to speak, at, say, the Paran market or the Toria markets there, or the Adelaide markets, if you went to a cheese store there, what kind of cheeses were they offering then? Oh, well, I had, my, my business was very much distribu- the distribution of international cheese from all over the world. But off the back of that, off the back of that I was trying to um, educate uh, people on, on on the benefits of local cheese. To me, you know, local cheese is important. I, I would never shrink away from the fact that you know, I wanted to see good Australian cheese, particularly in, in those years of, you know, being proud of Australia, et cetera. And the, the, there was, so there was a complete lack of knowledge about how to make it, plus, which um, I should say was, is important to recognise, but also the, the ability to use raw milk. They were forbidden from using raw milk. And in those days, we were allowed to import raw milk cheese as long as it was 120 days old. That was the only condition. Um, so, so there was no ban on, on the import of raw milk cheese, but local production was banned. Um, and that was frustrating. There's reasons for it if you think about it as being a young industry, but there's no reason why the right, with the right controls in place that we couldn't have ad- adapted the industry. And then on top of that, sometime in the mid-90s, uh, uh, there was the Uruguay round, free trade round. Australia introduced quotas on all imported cheese. And when the European Union announced that they were going to defend uh, ge- um, cheese, cheese names, food names based on geographical indicators, Australia and the Americans um ganged up and took the case to the World Trade Authority and at the same time started a, uh, a political campaign to ban the sale of all raw milk cheese, uh, which culminated in Australia in a test case in, in the early 2000s when the Australian government put all the state dairy authorities under one national food authority, which uh, eventually became Food Standards Australia New Zealand. And... and uh, they, they announced there would be a ban, not only on the production of, of raw milk cheese in Australia, but the sale of any raw milk cheese, which effectively, you'd, you'd laugh, banned uh, cheeses like uh, Parmigiano-Reggiano, Grana Padano, uh, Roquefort, everything. I mean, it was, it was, that was in 2000. And, and it was really a trade thing about, okay, well, if you Europeans want to, uh, geographically link your names and, and prevent us from copying the name Palmers and Brie, Camembert, etc. We will react and we will ban these cheeses from ever coming to our countries. And, and America looked on with interest. The first reaction in Australia was from the Italians who um, couldn't believe what I was telling them. <laughs> 
Um, and I was, I was, I should explain, I was irate because for two reasons. One, I'd been trying to promote Australian raw milk cheese and the, have the right to do it. And two, it suddenly had a massive impact on my business. Suddenly, you know, a load of cheeses I was bringing into the country were, were not allowed anymore. Um, so, so it was mega. And, and uh, the, the, so uh, I alerted the Italians to it and uh, they lobbied pretty hard in Canberra and and, and uh, the, the Food Standards Authority agreed to review the case. Um, the Swiss threatened to take Australia to the World Trade Organization, so they created a special exemption for Swiss, uh, Swiss Gruyere, Sprints and Emmental uh, whilst they reviewed the Italian scenario. Uh, but on the French side, the, the French... They, they were not united as a country when it came to, to um, doing anything about the Australian regulations. I, it was probably too small a market, but anyway, they didn't care. And the idea that Rockfall was banned, well, so what? Um, Putting aside those bans, how difficult was it at that time to import cheese? I mean, logistically, it must have been a, a nightmare. You, it's not like it's coming just over the channel to the UK from Europe. Oh, funny enough, logistics of, of bringing cheese to Australia, there's two options. I mean, you bring it by, by air or by boat. By air is expensive, but it works. Um, the biggest challenge by air is, is, is controlling temperature for a long period of time. It, it's not so easy as it sounds. And by boat, it's just a question of waiting and hoping that when it gets to Australia, there's not some industrial dispute waiting to slow it all down. And and really, it, it, it was a balance of those two methods. I, I That in itself was not the challenge. It was more uh, the biggest challenge with bringing cheese to Australia is the authorities who would love to test it within an inch of its life according to Australian rules. So the rules in Europe regarding cheese, um, micro, uh, uh, the the what you're allowed in Europe and what you're allowed in Australia are different Australian regulations to this day are entirely based on a pasteurised milk cheese. So any, any self-respecting um, raw milk cheese, will, uh, soft raw milk cheese will contain E. coli at a, at a level far higher than any Australian test will allow. So effectively it becomes a, a self-fulfilling ban. Um, that's a, that, that's that's and then the quarantine system and the quota system are, are quite intense. So Australia has a lot of barriers to trade, despite what it claims. Um, to to and, and and really, yes, it is the third largest exporter of commodity dairy products in the world. But it doesn't like the idea of importing cheese. Imported cheese in, in Australia represents around six percent of the market. Most of that comes from New Zealand. It's, the French cheese is not. Yeah, it's not it's not a big deal in terms of uh, volume. Um, so, and and in terms of why raw milk was important, well, just imagine France with no raw milk cheese. Just imagine you wouldn't there would be no there would be nothing. It would be like Denmark. It would be an international joke. You know, it'll be about making up fake names and meaningless cheeses that could be copied all over the world and mean nothing. It it's. It, in France is, I mean, France is interesting what's happening today with raw milk, but the reality is, is that, uh, in, in, particularly in 2000, France without raw milk cheese would be would have no reputation. Things, things have changed. A lot of things have changed since then, but um, that in, in those days, it, 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 you, did, you had no taste to place without raw milk, and yet it was banned in Australia. 
There are great cheeses now manufactured in Australia, and I know that you are and you have been a, very much a champion of Australian cheeses. What do you think of the cheese industry now in Australia? Uh, I, I think, well, I think it's come in leaps and bounds. It's it, it's it's done very well consider, considering the limitations on what it, what it's allowed to do. Um, I think that's the the point. But I but I think there's still a long way to go. If I look at the Australian industry versus, say, the American industry. Um, in the last 20 years, the U.S. has artisan cheese industries gone from strength to strength to strength. It's, there's some really good cheese out there. I don't think that's happened in Australia. I think there are some great. I think there are some great cheeses, but they're very small volume. They're very hard to get, and there's a glass ceiling because, again, if I go back to the raw milk, how imagine uh, the fromagerie in Paris not being able to sell raw milk cheese? If you walk into those fromagerie, you'll find that. 80%, 90% of their product is, is raw milk. It's not what's sold in, in Fauchon, I mean, in, in, in the, the, big, the big supermarkets. It's, it, it's, it's not the cheese sold in the big supermarkets. It's specifically, it's special, and it's why people go to those shops. In order to, um, to attract people to those shops, you've got to have something special. It's very hard for a retailer in Australia to offer something that isn't available in the supermarkets because they're not allowed, it's not available. It's it's not made, so it's it's the the the, the essential elements um, for, for 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 a successful industry are based on nationalism rather than on on fundamental economic principles. I mean, the whole thing about making uh, raw milk or traditional cheese uh, is is that that it, it starts with good quality milk, and it's very very important that the producer can command a premium for that product. Um, in order to survive, and it's also very important that the customer's prepared to pay for it. So it has to be taste better and 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 and, and be really good. It's got to be worth walking down to the fromagerie for and finding. So if you walk into a local market in, in Australia, the chances are that a lot of the time you'll find exactly what what's sold in the supermarkets. There's, there isn't a point of difference. They might cut cut it to order. That's, that's being a bit cruel, but it's, there's not the choice that you enjoy in, in, in Europe. Nothing like it. Or, or, or Singapore or Dubai or America or anywhere else. We're still, we're still 50 years behind the rest of the planet when it comes to cheese. Even New Zealand has no controls on the import of raw milk cheese. A lot of people will know you from the TV show Cheese Slices. How did the idea for Cheese Slices come about? Um, well, I could give you a lot of reasons for it. We're making a new show actually at the moment. It's, it's uh, uh, I'll tell you about that in a minute. But um, it was really, it was, it was actually as a result of the Rockfall case. It was a frustration because um, in this in this push for raw milk, I was perceived to be pushing. Uh, the the cause for French cheese and and rather and, and for imported cheese rather than um, for local cheese and and, and the, a lot of the local industry particularly the large producers felt that my role in the whole Rockford case was was uh, well was you know there was I was labelled the cheese terrorist just to put that <laughs> in some sort of perspective which you know. okay. Um, and 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 uh, I was thre- and, and, and in the process, I thought I had actually formed the Australian Specialist Cheesemakers Association to try and 
fight for the right for local cheesemakers to have similar rights to the imported cheese. And, and it, was, it was really interesting. I, I sort of learned what a tall poppy means. Until then, until 2002, I'd, I'd been, you know, I really felt that the industry and everything was working in the right direction. I'd written Chalk and Cheese, which won the best cheese book on the planet. And, you know, whether you believe that or not, it was pretty good to be able to do that in Australia. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and we, we were selling a lot of local cheese, but there was this frustration about not being able to, to, to take great Australian good quality milk and turn it into, into wonderful cheese. And, and, uh, and, and, and in fighting for, for, the, for the whole raw milk thing, and particularly using Roquefort as the, um, as, as, as the instrument to do that, the, the big end of town, the, the big cooperative producers, uh, took over the association and argued that what I was doing was, for, was self-interest. I didn't know what I was talking about and that really I was just trying to promote imports rather than the local industry. And it, it, uh, even to this day, there's a certain amount of suspicion that, um, that, that, what, I, that what I represent is very much about um, imported cheese rather than local cheese, which is pretty sad, but there you go. Um, and and the, the reason to make cheese slices was really to try and explain to uh, people that cheese around the world is made from raw milk. In fact, every single episode, the 67 episodes of cheese slices that's 67 by half an hour so you could watch you could spend a day a day and a night and another half a day watching them all if you like um <laughs> we like a good binge watch <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pushing it believe me um and and uh and and it was really trying to every single episode features a raw milk cheese bar one in greece um and 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 that, the reason for that is because I wanted to subtly explain that cheese, a taste of place, is is about um, having starting starts with raw milk, and that it's not something that everyone needs to be fearful of and dangerous. It's something to be celebrated. How many countries did you actually visit for the show? Uh, I think it's twenty six. It's a self. I should also explain it's a self funded show. So. I didn't. Um, Foxtel helped me out with the first three episodes, and after that, I funded every single episode. So it's not just, it's not so easy to get funding for a show about artisan cheese because the money in cheese is not in artisan cheese. It's at the top end of town. It's the big industrial producers. So um, yeah, and no, I'm pretty proud of the show. And it's what's been great about the pandemic is that the people have been locked down and had to watch it again and it's still running here it's still running here in australia and it, it it's still it, it stands amazing it's stood up to the test of time amazingly well um and it's sort of become a legacy project that i didn't know at the time you know you've always been making the next one a lot of travel but 26 countries in all um any regrets where where i didn't go mexico and and i'd like um, Peru and Bolivia, but you never know. We might get there yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking. So that means that. So you were just about to say you're doing a new series. So what's the new series? Well, during the well, uh, I stopped doing cheese slices in 2018, and and uh, I because I had a bad accident, and and I had to stop making and doing anything really. Um, my colon burst on the flight to LA, 
So that was a sort of wake-up call. Um, anyway, luckily, luckily for me, I survived that. And uh, so, um, what we're making, what we've been making during during the pandemic, is a story about Australian cheese and the raw milk thing again. So, we've made a couple of apps now. That I'm not quite sure they'll probably come out sometime next year. But uh, just looking at uh, raw milk and and the challenges for raw milk cheese because. What's happened um, in the last 20 years with raw milk is that, it, that farming has become cleaner and cleaner. So the, the whole uh, thing about making cheese from raw milk depends on the milk having you know, interesting bacteria in it. And if the milk's super clean because of modern farming techniques, then it, it, you, you have to add in starters to, to get the cheese to work. And that's happening in France. It's happening well, it doesn't happen in Australia because we're not allowed to make raw milk cheese most of the time, apart from a few. But um, so this, this, the, the show is about, um, the show, first of all, looks at, at raw milk and what it means. It looks at what's changed in Australia since the law here was changed, which primarily allows the production of hard-cooked cheese. That only took 10 years from the Rockfall case to... Um, uh, a promise to, to change things took ten years. And they, when they finally, when they finally did allow change, essentially it bans the production of blue cheese, it bans the production of soft surface ripened cheese, um, and really it only allows the production of hard cooked cheeses like Parmesan and Gruyere. Funny that, isn't it? <laughs> so go and visit those producers um, and, and uh, talk to them. And, and just look at the other implications that, that go with artisan cheese making. Because, uh, again, in the last 20 years, I mean, half of Australian farms have disappeared in the last 20, 20 years. So, you know, 10,000 family dairy farms have disappeared in Australia in the last 10 years. What does that mean? Well, that means 10,000 farmers don't have to get up every day of the week and milk their cows. But that, that it means that... And yet the, the production, the amount of milk produced in Australia has hardly changed. So what does that also mean? That means there's more cows in herds. And uh, because this is a, a grass-based grass, grass um, feed system in Australia, the reason Australia can produce cheap milk is because essentially our dairy animals don't be, have to be housed during the winter or during the summer. Um, they're, they're, it's a grass-based feed system, which is relatively cheap to run. Uh, it, it means that the herd sizes have become larger and larger. But the idea of you putting your cows out on the paddocks and then bringing them in from the grass to get milked, it becomes harder and harder. If you have a lot of animals, it gets pretty hard to do that. So you're starting to see some herd sizes going up to five, 6,000 animals. They're, 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 they're milked on rotary dairies. Often their tails are cut off, their condition... It's not great. Um, I don't say all this in the TV show, but, you know, the average life of a cow in Australia is about um, a third of that in France. So we're producing these factory animals, animal welfare, it's all sorts of... And, and, and take somewhere like New Zealand, like we love to think of New Zealand as, 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 as you know, green wonderland. Well, guess what? 98% of the rivers in, in New Zealand are dead because of dairy farming, 98%. And uh, that, the same thing's happening in, in Europe too. It's not it's not exclusive to Australia, um, but artisan cheese uh, offers a, a, another way. We, it's not sustainable to continue to farm 
the way we do for mass production of milk. It's just not sustainable. It's it's in the, in the world we live in. It's not sustainable, and we need to come. We need to recognise that it's not just in Australia, around the world. And so, the, defending artisan cheese is just as important now as it was forty years ago. In fact, maybe more. And 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 get, and the most important thing is getting people to get out there and look for it. Because if with, without the customer to go out there and buy it and, and appreciate that, that it's different, then that, those artists and cheese makers don't stand a chance. And that, I don't want to harp on about it, but the most logical way of making that cheese different is raw milk. If you have to buy your starter culture from France and, and pasteurise the milk, where, why are you different to the big guy? So you were a guest judge on MasterChef and obviously – I was on MasterChef as a contestant, but what's the experience like as uh, being a guest judge as opposed to a contestant? Well, you wouldn't know what a contestant's experience was like, but I can tell you one day over a glass of wine or two or a bottle or two. Um, but what was that experience like as a judge? Well, I can tell you what it would be like as, 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 a, as a competitor. It's a bit like being one of those cows in, in the in that, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was a little bit. Yeah. It could be, it could be right, called yeah. competitor welfare. I was pretty shocked yes. about the way the, 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 the competitors were treated. It was awful. Um, if you really want to know, I thought it was really bad. I thought they're just, they're, they're Andrew, you know, you're manipulated to, to your, your emotions are constantly manipulated to expose to, to, the, to the world, um, you know, your shortcomings, which and we're only human. And to me, that's, oh, that's a real problem, that and, and MasterChef. But anyway, I don't want to get into it, so... But I have a problem. I have a problem with that because it's 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 more about trying to trying to unnerve the, the the contestants than it is about the food half the time. And I'm just fine. I have a problem with that. Anyway, that's luckily I don't have to do that. So, um, what was it like? Um, it was well, it was fun. It was it was a bit of fun. I mean, I think one of the first times I ever got to get to be made up. Did you get made up as a contestant? No, they never, no. Well, I think you did, like, if you got to the finale, um, but no, I didn't. In fact, I do think that uh, I, I, since my season, I definitely noticed that there's a bit of a wardrobe going on. So I think now they might get, uh, you know, sponsors to to give them outfits and things like that because nobody told me that I shouldn't be wearing T-shirts. <laughs> and I was <laughs> running around injuring my knees. Um, <laughs> yeah, nobody told me that. Nobody told me what I looked like. Anyways. It's all good. I, I look. I, to be honest, I was lucky. I'd done enough TV at that stage to not to sort of vaguely know what I was doing, and 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 uh, yeah. So well, we did a baked cheese recipe, which to this day re- revolves around and around and around. And it was it was a, it was a recipe I'd got in in um, in uh, Normandy. Basically, it was just about blanching some garlic, putting it into camembert, uh, splashing some wine over the top, a little bit of um, thyme. Squeeze of pepper, chuck it in the oven for twenty minutes. Done. It's really not hard, and it uh, looks great on TV, and, and it's easy to explain. Because that's the other thing is, is that 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 level of TV you can't make it too complicated. That was the first part of our chat with the wonderful Will Stud, learning all about cheeses in Australia. But next week, we have got French cheeses and most importantly, Roquefort cheese to discuss with Will, and I can't wait. Thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious with Will Studd this week, and next week, I'll see you for part two. Abiento and bon app.
Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.